Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Mark and Sarah call it a comeback. Mark and Sarah been here for years. Mark and Sarah talk about songs. Talk about songs. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the mid-season miscellaneous jam on Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. <laughs> we are still calling it a comeback, but we're talking about different kinds of comebacks and comeback artists' other stuff. It's sort of an odd lot, just like us. I'm Sarah oh. D. Bunting, your co-host, and I am here, as always, with Mark Blankenship. Hello, Mark. Hello, hello, hello. I'm pleased to be here. Oh my gosh, we haven't heard from Teddy in a while. Um, right. Teddy I've slash Mark, to, can you, can you tell the listeners what we're up to today? <laughs> no one thinks that the bear's got anything to say, but they're wrong, right? Uh, anyway, yes, I can't explain what the hell is going on here, I think. Um, so <laughs> Mark can is having Emil, a stroke. Enjoy. <laughs> I think that Emil Skoda or Elizabeth Olivet might also be able to help us understand what's going on here today. Um, so... We wanted to take a little pause before we jump into our Sweet 16, which is when the ranking system that we use changes and uh, things get much more intense for the remaining songs in the tournament. And we thought, what better way to do that than a bit of a halftime episode where we talk about songs that fulfill the idea of a comeback, but in a more left of center way. So we've got a couple of general categories that we're going to explore today to talk about some other types of comebacks, songs that uh, represent those com- comebacks pretty well and give us an opportunity to dig even more deeply into what the hell we mean when we say comeback in the first place. Uh, Sarah, do you think that seems fair as a way of describing what this is? Yeah. And, you know, there's just some stuff that, like, we realized we probably, quote, should have talked about it in the main body of the season, and it just didn't shake out that way so this is us sort of um patching some patching some holes that's right with some plaster uh actually our very first song today is a great example of that it is don't go breaking my heart by the backstreet boys and we're putting this in the general odd lot category of medium-sized comebacks uh it certainly was a song that i remember coming out in 2019 it was on the radio Uh, I remember also being like, hey, this song, or 2018, I should say, I'm sorry. And I remember when the song came out, I I was like, hey, this shit ain't half bad. And Sarah, I seem to recall that you liked it too. Am I right about that? Not only did I like it, but I happened to be on Pop Culture Happy Hour when it was was. out and was like, it was one of my things that was making me happy that week. And uh, it's still on my hashtag old lady walk playlist and continues to make me happy in that regard to this day. Yeah, I agree with you. In fact, I thought that that's where you had talked about it. And yes, you're right. It is making me happy, too. For uh, the chart nerds out there, this song reached number 63 on the Hot 100 in 2018. And it was the first time that the Backstreet Boys had been on the Hot 100 at all in 11 years, which is really a good lengthy time. Uh, It also helped the album that it was on, an album called DNA, go to number one on the album chart. So, you know, a legitimate comeback. And it was, it did medium well in many countries around the world and uh, perhaps not as much of a comeback as, say, Shares Believe, but still, I think, um, a song I was glad to hear and remain glad to hear because there is just something so nice about a boy band that has stayed together as a boy band and 
they've just continued to make it work. And I remember too, Sarah, that this song came out roughly around the same time as a great documentary that I wrote about for Previously.TV about the Backstreet Boys and their time together. And it just really made them seem like a great group of guys who, though they are imperfect human beings, have managed to make it work for quite some time in a very high-pressure situation. All of that said, I like this song and I pulled a clip. Oh, it's so good. I uh, am sort of glad that you didn't pull the um, section of or the chorus version where he's like, "Ah," because like uh, there would be no coming back emotionally from that for me on this podcast. And I just have to be like wailing it out. I was struck by this songs like it was expertly built like any, you know, Backstreet product. But the emotion in it is so much deeper, I feel, than stuff from their heyday. And um, there's so many good, like, lyrical moments that it's like, mm. yeah, you know, am I freaking you out by talking like this and now you're going to drive away like it's stolen, which is, like, a great, I love that, um, love that turn of phrase generally. Um, this song was just, like, really striking in that it was everything that they used to do but grown up. And... Um, I do wonder if we not made a mistake, not including it, but is this, maybe my question is, is this like sui generis in terms of like an act that was so massive that it's not really possible to come back to that original high watermark? I don't think Mm. that's true because we have been talking about Mariah Carey this season and like extremely big one name acts and bands that were extremely big and then did have like a more modest comeback that was still impressive. But this does seem like there's not a lot of acts like this, that it was like utterly dominant on TRL, um, this like monocultural monolith. And then this song comes out and the grownups are all kind of like, Oh yeah, that's good. But actual kids are like, who cares? (laughs) I don't know. Thoughts. Yeah, I think that uh, there probably is a case to be made that this song could have made it into the tournament. But, you know, whatever. That shift sailed. Uh, But I am glad that we're able to talk about it here because I think it really does fulfill a lot of the things we've been discussing, including the fact that it felt good when they got another hit. Like, I was happy for them to return. Mm -hmm. And for them to return with a song that makes sense as a Backstreet Boys song, but also sounds like, as you said an evolution of the Backstreet Boys at the same time. There is Mm -hmm. something more emotionally powerful about the vocal here. The lyrics are a little bit more specific. Uh, Yeah, I think think as medium-sized comebacks go, this one's pretty great. Yeah, I agree. Now, another topic that we had come up with in our Odd Lots uh, uh, array was comebacks for us personally, which I just thought was such an interesting way of putting it. I, I love that you put mm-hmm. that in our shared document and I don't have a clip of this, but the first thing that came to my mind was the singer, uh, Jennifer Nettles, who is the lead singer of Sugarland, which has been a very popular country group for many years now. She's also gone on to appear in 
several TV movies playing the mother of Dolly Parton. Uh, it's like, it's like, you know, you, these movies about Dolly Parton's past and then Jennifer Nettles mm-hmm. plays her mom. Jennifer Nettles is also in 12 years a slave of all things. So, okay. Um, but wow. before, before all of that, she was a very, very popular indie artist in the Atlanta scene. She was in an unfortunately named, but musically excellent duo called soul miners daughter. Okay. And I'll just sit with that and acknowledge again, it is a terrible name, but the music was good. And then she had the Jennifer Nettles band, which was also really good. And so if you were someone who was into this type of music, like country or acoustic folk or Americana music, and you lived in Atlanta in the late nineties and early two thousands, as I did because I was going to college, then Jennifer Nettles was your shit. And so it was really crazy to me when several years later, she suddenly has this massive mainstream country music hit with Sugarland and then many, many other hits with them too. So it was uh, a very specific type of comeback. And I guess it's more like a breakthrough than a comeback, but Jennifer Nettles came back to my consciousness because uh, I was like, whoa, whoa, shit, this country song that I just heard, it sounded like Jennifer Nettles and it was. So I thought that was cool. And Sarah, do you have anyone that uh, was a comeback for you personally like that or in any other way? Um, I do. And, you know, looking at this, um, looking at this sub odd lot, I thought to myself, self, this is where we should have put the Sundays in the previous round. (laughs) Um, Not least because I'm not sure I have another example, but then I actually do. And it was an album that came out from the Stone Roses in the mid 90s called Second Coming. Mm. Um, We had been waiting for it for quite some time. Um, My particular friend group in university, wore out the Stone Roses' previous two discs. Um, I still listen to them all the time. Their lead singer has and has had a lot of problems, and there were constant battles with their record company that, like, usually my default position is, like, record companies are dicks. Um, Hashtag free the artists. But um, in Ian Brown's case, I really kind of see their point. Also, (laughs) he could not sing on key, could not stay sober, and now apparently is like a lunatic anti-vaxxer, allegedly. Um, His Wikipedia page is a garden of horrors, and I don't don't recommend it. (laughs) But I think critics sort of looked at Second Coming and were like, this is undisciplined, like, bluesy, blah, 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 like, this, these songs do not need to be six and a half minutes long. Um, but they said that about uh, I Am The Resurrection, which was a previous song that is also way too long that I love, because when Ian Brown can stay on key and on task, he can just wail an indie Britpop chorus and uh, the turn from the bridge into I Am the Resurrection and the Life is one of the great, like, ooh, the little hairs on my arms are standing up even talking about it moments Ooh. in Britpop of that era. And I just think that they're, I mean, objectively, are they Hall of Fame great? Probably not. But they bring me back to a time and Second Coming came out after college was over So I spent a lot of time with the record like by myself and uh, it was different a little bit from stuff that they'd done before, but some of the nine minute songs like justified the build, others 
were bullshit, but you just skip them. And uh, this really made me um, think that this category was worth discussing for us because I think that we and like I in particular have vanished down a number of these like B and C list minor bands with two and a half albums and an <laughs> EP who like now they, you know, then they just like went back to college and now they teach like creative writing at some like little um division two university and it's like whatever happened to such and so and it's like well he raises sheep now like oh that's awesome um so i had i feel like a lot of these bands um one time one of my roommates and i were flipping through my cd book do you have one of those oh you better believe i had a case logic yeah more than got, one. uh-huh you gotta you gotta save room in your dorm room and we realized just how many of these like minor Britpop band names could be euphemisms for farts <laughs> or like album names that were synonyms for fart, farts and poo, <laughs> like Elephant Stone, hmm. Vapor Trail. Hmm. So yeah, anyway, um, college <laughs> and also Sarah, <laughs> it, it has come back once again. Yes. Just things that come out of your butt. It had been a couple episodes. Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> Don't worry. You knew we'd get there eventually. Yeah. Uh-huh. Never fret. It, it, always, it always comes back slash out. Speaking of shit. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> our next category. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm, I'm so sorry in advance. I will fire myself after this episode. <clears throat> Mark, good luck to you. We had a good run. Now we're talking about comebacks that fizzled or tried too hard. And absolutely the first thing that popped into my head and then blotted out all sunlight for everyone forever (laughs) was David Cassidy's refusal to stop fucking with I Think I Love You and just leave it alone as a perfect 1970 pop confection. I still remember watching his Behind the Music and feeling throughout like his whole attitude about his stardom was kind of weird and off. Mm. Um, Like that he was very brittle about a lot of stuff and clearly Mm. had not adjusted to the idea that he needed to start going on the heritage tour with all the Brady's except Jan and just like accept his fate (laughs) kind of. Yes. And at the end of this at the end of this episode they show him in the studio remixing i oh. think i love you in the r&b style oh. Oh. and he's like performatively got one side of the headphones pressed to his ear and he looks like he is trying to poo a cube it is very bad and cringy (laughs) i wish that you listeners could see mark covering his face um because there's really no other response except possibly barfing um quote great unquote news i have a clip (laughs) it's almost a minute long because it keeps decomposing into a different kind of bad every four bars or so and i really didn't want to suffer alone so take up my burden listener 
here is I Think I Love You, 1998 style, buckle up. Ooh, I think I love you. I'm sleeping and right in the middle of a good dream Like all at once I wake up from something that keeps knocking at my brain Before I go insane, I hold my pillow to my head And spring up in my bed, screaming out the words I dread I think I love you What? I'll tell you what I'm so afraid of. I'm so I'm so afraid that I might have to listen to that again at some point in my life. I promise to remove it from the soundboard forever. By the light of a full moon, I will shoot it and then bury it. Um, there are so many profoundly troubling aspects to this <laughs> snippet through which we have all just emerged... <laughs> coated in coated in fire and rage. Um first of all, first and foremost, his vocal A is making every bad choice, but B just is not good. Like he does not have he does not he's not in voice anymore. No. And this was the best take. But then at the end he's doing all this like warbly um Tom Jones says, what? Shit, that doesn't work. And he just sounds like he's been smoking menthols because he's anxious about getting back in the studio. And then the other vocal on the track just is this like weirdly, I don't like proto Cardi B. (laughs) Like it's it's just gross and it, it makes me uncomfortable and I don't enjoy speaking ill of the dead. Although I have to tell you, I also read his memoir and it was bullshit. And uh, (laughs) I don't think uh, if he were still on this side of the veil that he would be an acceptable hang. I'm just going to put that out there. Like don't like cut all the kids out or none of them, but don't be that guy. Like, Katie Cassidy seems like a sweet lady. She probably had her reasons for being estranged from you, dumbass. Yeah. (laughs) This, he was releasing albums like every three to five years, whether anyone asked or not. I am confident nobody asked. And (laughs) this is why. This is from a covers album called Old, like, Old Dog New Trick or wait. Yeah. It's something Uh, like that. Hold on. I will I will find this information. Old trick, new dog. Like, um, yeah, I'm wow. hearing an old trick right now. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I'm not sorry at all. And then the album cover, he's in like 10 different kinds of denim. Like, okay. This is exhausting. And- you look like a Richard Ford author photo. I'm angry that I even am thinking about this again. I'm angry that I put Mark through it. I need to go and seethe quietly in the direction of David Cassidy's cremains. Mark, please talk to me about your process in confronting 
this quote song? Well, the thing that I, I, in the clip, for instance, you may have noticed that there is for no apparent reason, a sitar. (laughs) Like who, Uh who in the world was like, you know what, David Cassidy, you've got the chops to incorporate world music sounds into your material. <sighs> like, no, you don't, actually. And th- just it just reeks of someone who is thinking, I know what will make me sound hip again. Like, there's just no indication at all that he has an actual musical identity. What he has is a management team who has heard the things on the radio and kind of vaguely understood them and decided that their boy David should really jump on those trends and show the world that he's still got it and he can hang with the young kids. And it's just so horrifying, especially (laughs) because it makes the song I Think I Love You a full minute longer than it was when it became a hit. And Uh I just think... Who looked at this and thought, you know what? We need this to be completely bullshit and we need it to be longer than the original version. It's just, it's just, why? Why? Why do you have so little understanding of what made the song a hit in the first place? Why do you feel like anyone wants to hear your take? Okay, yes. An artist that we talked about earlier in the season, Neil Sadaka, was able to have a top 10 hit when he did a new version of his song, Breaking Up Is Hard To Do. He re-recorded it as a glurgy ballad, and it was a hit again. But guess what, David? Dead Cassidy. I'm sorry you're dead. I'm still saying this shit. That was not the right choice for you. You are not yeah. Nasadaka in this situation. Well, and here's the here's the difference, I think, between Neil Sadaka and David Cassidy. I mean, there are myriad differences, and uh, why list them all? But here's one, and I think this also, there are certain teen idols or like properties for kids or for girls or whatever that they their ability to even if it's not how they saw it going to adjust to the fact that this is as they say so to speak the lead in the obit that it's like is anybody going to talk about the backstreet boys and not mention trl and be like they're philanthropic like nobody's gonna do that they are backstreet boys they were a boy band and you have to accept that and dance with the ones that brung you and there are definitely some artists particularly in the behind the music under that aegis where some of them are like, yeah, you know, did I want to actually rock out and be like taken seriously as a guitar god? Fuck yeah. But that's not right. what the universe had in store. So this is where what we're doing now. But then you have dudes like David Cassidy who can't accept that he's not... He feels like he's not taken seriously, but by that same token, he's not taking his fans seriously because it's like just girls or whatever the fuck. And it's like, I understand that you're from a previous generation. I understand that you were probably getting gigged in some, frankly, probably like homophobic ways in addition to the misogyny that you couldn't control and resented. And I have some sympathy for that, but it's like you made 
like wonderful bubblegum pop music and you were inside everyone's locker and in everyone's bunk. And that's not a bad thing. You didn't make anything poor. I mean, okay, whatever. It depends on what you think of the Partridge family, but you didn't make anything harmful. Yeah. And you were running around with like wearing overalls with no shirt and no underpants underneath. I could tell. And I mean, who gets to do that? Not everybody. Like, enjoy what you are and what you did and what you made and stop trying so hard to be something else because it just ruins it and also is a little insulting to us girls and other guy likers. I think it's really what it's so well said to just say, maybe take your fans seriously. Maybe don't shit on people for liking you just because you are embarrassed. Like, get, maybe get over yourselves. And that is why the new kids on the block are so cool now. Yes. Yes. Because if you go to a new kids concert, which I did, as I've spoken about ad nauseum here, I went to one last year. I an arena full of shrieking, very happy people. And the new kids on the block were happy to be there and play to those people and they were not embarrassed. They had a camera that would specifically zoom in on Donnie Wahlberg's ass and people would cheer. And like, yes. So what? And, uh, it's just a shame. Danny Wood is in his fifties. He is cut like a goddamn diamond and he can still do a neck spin break move. And he does it because that's his goddamn job. And he takes it seriously. Fucking a. Yes. And it's a shame that, that, David Cassidy, um, like so many other teen stars of this period, Leif Garrett being another one, Mm -hmm. obviously. But it's a shame that he couldn't find his way into embracing that and got seemed to get so stuck, like you said, on he didn't take his fans seriously and therefore he resented that he wasn't taken seriously by, frankly, the douchebags at Rolling Stone at Owl. And, you yeah. know, history has shown that those people don't deserve to have any judgment on what you think about yourself anyway. No, um, they sure fucking don't, because they were only paying close attention to, like, 22% of the culture. So, great. Anyway, it's just Yawn. a shame. And David Cassidy died of, like, liver failure because of years of alcoholism. And apparently his final words were so much wasted time. Which is just real sad. And I just feel like maybe if he'd been able to be more content, I, I don't know him. I never knew him, whatever. Who are we to judge? But the whole thing just is, it's unfortunate. And I'll tell you that's nothing. However, is more unfortunate, at least in terms of his artistic work, than this God awful work in the sitar drenched seven and a half hour long ver- new version of, I think I love you. Well, I'm going to just do this on mic, and if you want me to cut it out later because you don't dig the idea, that's fine. But I'm just going to pitch you, Lost Songs Project guy, on some kind of like long-form investigation into that family. Because Jack Cassidy, his father, was an actor who I think in his personal life, like the bitterness leached into the soil in the same way because he never became a big deal movie actor. And at that time, there was a... Like the TV to acting on TV was considered like Bush League by comparison. And then you look at his sons and David Cassidy, I think, just never got over not being Eric Clapton, which like now that we know what we know about that guy, probably better. But Sean Cassidy was just like, look, 
I did a like it's not even bubble it's like sugarless bubblegum pop. <laughs> My hair feathered better than a seagull. Um, how many patchwork caps did I own? Who knows? And then he started like producing TV and just sort of embracing like I have a certain role in the culture that lets me do certain other cool things and I'm not better than my life. Right. And he I mean he seems, I don't know his life either. I don't know any of their lives. He seems content and fulfilled in a way that like every time there was some update or David Cassidy put an afterword on his biography or did an intervention with Danny Bonaducci, it was like, just try, try to sit with some gratitude. It might help. And I, I just don't think he ever got there or he, it was too late. Yeah, did, and I so. think that you're definitely right about Sean Cassidy because I did write about On the Lost Songs Project, which for those of you who are listening who might not know, is a substack that I run where I investigate top 10 hits that have fewer than 10 million streams and think about why those songs were popular then and what's worth recovering about them now. Anyway, I did a I did an entry on a Sean Cassidy song called Hey Dini, which is actually a great song. And mm-hmm. I did in my research uncover that you're right. It seems like Sean Cassidy made it out in a pretty good place. And I think it has yeah. a lot to do with what you just said, which is don't feel like you're superior to the life you have. Try to just look at the life you have and see the advantages contained therein. And then enjoy them and honor them as best you can. Like I know that the phrase to compare is to despair is cliched and hackneyed, but there is of course that bit of truth in it where if you spend all of your time being like, I'm only I have a number one song, but it's not cool enough. Well, like maybe you're missing the fact that you have a number one song. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I've spent a lot of time sort of in this headspace that, you know, especially in the beginning of the internet, that it was like, oh, well, you're doing the internet because nobody cares about, nobody cares to pay you to be in print. Well, that was true. Now it's not. But like, you can't, I don't know. Like, am I supposed to be a shithead to people who are on the mighty big TV boards because I wasn't writing a novel? Like, that's just not how being a human being works. Anyway, right. we are quite far afield. This is not a advice to people who already died <laughs> podcast. Although, Although Sarah, it all might... ends up there. <laughs> I feel like an advice we to keep people driving who are by that dead. house. I don't know. Maybe we should just buy it. <laughs> I... <laughs> oh my god! Anyway, you also had um, you also had an American Idol themed answer yes. to this one to try oh. hard comebacks. Do you want to talk more about that? I mean. Bless her heart, Paula Abdul. Okay. Like, (laughs) Paula Abdul was, of course, an important part of American Idol. And she did make some fantastic pop songs in her day. Mm -hmm. I I don't think anyone is going to argue that Straight Up is a... I don't think anyone would argue with the idea that Straight Up is a good pop song. It is good. It's better than good. It's fantastic. Then the whole thing uh, on... American Idol was that here was this woman who had had six number one hits in America, but she never once would sing on the show. She would never do anything that involved music other than sit and be a judge of it. And there was just this sort of, I think that there was just this idea somewhere that she needed to get back out there and prove her metal. And so Randy Jackson got together and co-produced a song called dance. Like there's no tomorrow Um, 
And Paula Abdul sang it and it was performed on American Idol and it did actually manage to chart on the Hot 100 at number 62. But what it mostly did was prove that Paula Abdul was correct to just be a judge on American Idol. And nobody in the time of her initial wave of popularity was mistaking her for a virtuosic singer or musician. No. And she did a lot with the limited instrument that she had. She had a Mm -hmm. lot of spunk. She had a lot of personality. She managed to um, bring a lot of charm to her vocal performances. But even on a song like Rush Rush, her big ballad, they audibly and noticeably turn her mic down every time she tries to hit a big note, right? Okay, fine. Same is true of like 15 other people you could name. It's fine. Mm -hmm. But on Dance Like There's No Tomorrow, she came back with a song that was so bland and she herself seemed to have no more access to that charm. So all you get is just the sound of a computer being sad, basically. And yeah, it just, it was, it was a bad song and it made me feel an intense amount of visceral embarrassment because I wanted the new Paula Abdul song to be dope. I would have loved to see Paula Abdul get another top 10 hit, but Oh my God, this was just not the way. If they're going to bring anything back from Paula Abdul's, um, let's say improbable sideways lateral move from dance to song in the video era, it should be her branded line for LA gear. Those sneakers would look hot today on my feet (laughs) universe dance my cry. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, in my apartment right now, I do have a vintage pack of Paula Abdul themed gum that I found at a used, uh, you know, I found at a vintage store and uh-huh. I'm delighted to have that. And I have that and I have easy access to the forever your girl album. That's all I need. Yeah. I think that is all you need. Um, I mean, I don't want to be too much of a cold hearted snake. about oh. Paula. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess now is a good time. Maybe. Uh, with the segue of doesn't anyone close to you care about you (laughs) (laughs) to go into odd lot Grammys and start. Well, first we're going to wait for Mark to not choke on his water. (laughs) Just in the category of doesn't anyone close to you care about you? Oh God. Sadly. Could someone please help? Elvis, thank you. It's a sadly um, actually, vast this section, category. This section is called <laughs> Odd Lot Grammys. And um, yeah, I mean, every time we end up talking sort of in a sideways or tangential fashion about Elvis Presley on this podcast, I end up going on like this disquisition about um, <laughs> how, it w- how it was like elder abuse, even though he was younger than either of us when he died. But anyway, here's the point. He did win three Grammys. He won in 1968 um, for the best inspirational performance, uh, How Great Thou Art, was the song. It's not a hymn that I really connect with. Um, I listened to it thinking I would pull a clip for this, and then I was like, oh, he won another Grammy in 1975 for the same song, but a live performance of it in Memphis. 
I found a video and um, then I just had to turn away from the screen because, first of all, Elvis in the 70s, he was altered. It was a day ending in Y. Also, whoever put him in his costume failed to correct for the very visible moose knuckle of his jumpsuit. No, are you <sighs> familiar with what a moose knuckle is, Mark? Oh, yes, I am. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I am familiar, yes. And okay. I am very familiar Just, also with... You were you were looking confused and stunned, and I wasn't sure if you didn't know what I was talking about no. or were just regretting in your heart that I was talking I, about it. I can just picture it in a in a seventies jumpsuit. Is the is I was just imagining what it would look like in a seventies jumpsuit. As yeah, well. it's just not. Mm. I mean, these <laughs> were made custom for him, but I think there were some fluctuations in weight. Anyway, you know, bless his heart, literally. But uh, in between, he won for a different song called, um, unfortunately, He Touched Me. <laughs> I, I, I might change that in the catalog, but I don't get to, I don't get to make the rules. <laughs> oh, my God. Guys, we killed Mark. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so this was a 1973 Grammy winner, also for Best Inspirational Performance. <laughs> I think he was nominated for a bunch of different other Grammys and other things that you might sort of assume that he would be closer to, like pop song, R&B, album of the year, whatever. He, he only won these. And I have a clip of <sighs> He Touched Me. Um, yeah, it's so <gasps> unfortunate because this is, I don't love this arrangement. I think it's a little let in, but he is feeling it for sure. And this is a, this is the rare recording, in my opinion, in which you feel like he is in control of the instrument and is absolutely like pushing it up to like he's redlining it right like he right. often does the bare minimum because he can because he has a great instrument and he can be a little lazy and surface in his interpretations because either some you know cocktail of medications is not working out for him that day or he just doesn't have to work that hard but here he is absolutely dug in and i think based on reading I've done he's probably like showing off a little for the backup singers <laughs> I'm trying to be like see I could do this um and as always when I hear a performance like this it just is like what a shame that a nobody insisted that he get off all of these uppers and downers b nobody pushed him to really work 
Yeah. Um, and that we have really so few exemplars of this where because he's being backed by, I don't know if this was the Jordanaires or I think he toured with the stamps and then recorded with the Jordanaires. Feel free to at me. But these were artists that he like knew could interpret spiritual and inspirational music um, and did it all the time and that he would have to race his game. So he mm. did. And it just seems like, uh, I mean, talk about so much wasted time that it's like, why didn't you just do this all the time? Because this is when you were locked in and challenged and enjoying being Elvis Presley, which I think by the seventies, like 90% of the time, it was just like being Elvis Presley TM and existing in this weird barbiturate twilight of being a single name famoso. And instead of like working, creating, doing like cool shit with all of the uh, advantages that you now have. Right. Anyway, um, sorry to continue this rant that I give every time. I just feel like that is the biggest um, waste of talent and a great spirit, like in cultural history, possibly it just fucking sucks. Anyway, that won a Grammy. It maybe shouldn't have. I think Conway Twitty was nominated in this category also that year, but I just am like endlessly fascinated by Elvis as the artist buried in Elvis, the like corporate entity. Right. Also, he touched me. No, 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 yeah. he didn't. Please say it another way. Thank you. I think that all of those things you just said, though, are so well said and so true. And it is so painful to consider. It's kind of like what happened to Judy Garland, except yeah. worse, mm -hmm. because yeah. Judy Garland at least made that album at Carnegie Hall where you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. This is... If this is what she can still do, um, yeah, it's just it's really a shame to watch what happened to this incredibly gifted person. Well, anyway, I won't just reiterate everything you've said. I think you're right. Um, yeah. um, but, I will also note that who knows how many um, artists of color, if he had been just sort of like engaged with his career at all at the end there, how many artists of color he could have elevated by being basically like the entree of quote race music into the pop culture in the middle of the 20th century. I mean, what I don't know about this shit is a lot, obviously they say at home. Um, but you know, I just like, there were so many ways in which that was a, a sorrow and a pity. And mm. part of it is for, um, R and B and artists of color. So his, comeback of sorts at the Grammys uh, in terms of coming back to win awards uh, when he when he also won those awards pretty late in his career yeah. as these things go because mm -hmm. he was nominated for a Grammy as early as the second ever Grammy ceremony but mm -hmm. then didn't win until many years later uh, yes I don't think that any of this would have made sense in our regular season but I am very glad to have heard you talk about it now um, and Along the lines of Grammy-related odd lot comebacks, I mm -hmm. wanted to talk about 
the weird lane that exists for a certain type of winsome, whimsical pop star who decides Mm -hmm. to go make music for children. Because there are a lot of them, and the Grammys consistently honor them. Um, Well, the Bare Naked Ladies have made music for children, which makes sense because they're kind of a goofy band. Mm-hmm. They, I don't believe, have been Grammy nominated for it. Uh, they Might Be Giants has made uh, an album for children. Then they have been nominated for a Grammy for it. Mm-hmm. But then I feel the- like that's now like three generations of music lovers who have been, um, I mean, exposed to makes it sound bad, but no, they might be giants like across time and um, generational direction. It's pretty cool. I mean, when you add in the fact that they were in that Tiny Toons episode where they did MTV parodies and two of the parodies were of They Might Be Giant songs, come on. Gorgeous. Gotta love it. But the real shining example of the strange comeback via the Grammys and children's music is Lisa Loeb. Because Lisa Loeb obviously really only had a handful of hits. There was Stay, which is her big hit. And then she had two more songs that reached the top 20 shortly thereafter, that being uh, I Do and Do You Sleep. And then that was it. I mean, she kind of was always someone you would see around. She had a reality show for a while, uh, whatever. But then suddenly she goes over to this other lane and she makes this album called Feel What You Feel. And she won a Grammy for children's recording And it just strikes me as a very specific, limited, but still potent type of comeback to Mm -hmm. suddenly win a Grammy in a completely different genre of music. Um, Yeah, I just didn't really know very much about this until I started to research it. And uh, I was surprised at the fact that she had won. I actually thought I was going to be talking mostly about They Might Be Giants. But then as I dug into this Grammy category for children's music, I saw that she had won and I was like, oh, shit. So then I tracked down the song Feel What You Feel, and Sarah, it features a guest rap by Craig Robinson, known Uh, largely for The Office and other TV things. (laughs) Like, what? Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh Uh-huh. So here is a clip of Feel What You Feel by Lisa Loeb featuring Craig Robinson. Squirmy fidget, double digit, past the speed of light. Crazy chasey, win the racy, ants in your pants, oh my. Feeling weirdo, itchy beardo, something's just not right. Mm-mm. Rat race needs space, skin's on too tight. <laughs> I mean, okay. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, I don't know if it's good, but I don't hate it. And yeah, good for her. And we're definitely not the target audience for that song. Maybe if we were five, we'd be like, this is my shit. Yeah. It does seem like it's right on that. It stays up on that tightrope of like kids will like it and parents whose kids become obsessed with it will not want to drive into oncoming traffic when it's on (laughs) in the car. And that's what you want. Yeah. And, you know, who doesn't like to have a list of nonsense rhymes? Easy, breezy, queasy, bleasy, 
everybody eat some honeybees. He's yeah, like, okay. rat race meat space. Like, <laughs> what are you doing there, Craig? Itchy, itchy beard. I don't think any children have yeah. itchy beards. Mm. <laughs> but you know what? Why not? Why not yeah. record a song with Craig Robinson? And why not win a Grammy for it? Lisa Loeb, good for you. Because you know what? It's not a comeback that reached the heights of uh, Old Town Road or whatever. But it, it's like good for Lisa Loeb for finding a way to keep it going for decades. Well, yeah, she was kind of like this considered very 90s artist who like you look at that video you listen to the song and the thing is it dated the second it went off the line (laughs) right yes so for her to be able to um regroup and do something else um and you know what's funny this brought me back to thinking about the Lilith season so then I was like hmm maybe we should have tried to find a selection from Tori Amos's metal album (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, talk about a talk about a regroup. Holy shit. <laughs> but uh, Tori, Tori Amos, can't read because this is the wrong genre for her. And, yes. But she figured it out. Fucking A. So, I mean, honestly, much respect to you, Lisa Loeb, and your Grammy-winning album of children's songs. And I will say that the cover of this album features various pieces of toast with little holes punched out so that it looks like the toast has smiley faces on it and then on one of the pieces of toast they also put a pair of the signature lisa loeb cat eye glasses cute and i i would frame that shit and hang it in a bathroom it's so cute yeah why not like i think the knock on her was like well this is a little cutesy like you know what lean in there's a whole there's a whole demographic out there for you and you know what she didn't do she didn't use a fucking sitar and stretch <laughs> a perfectly good song a minute and a half past the sell-by. <laughs> ah! No, she sure didn't. And I guarantee you that she and Craig Robinson had fun recording that song and making that music video. Yeah, exactly. That was a fun day at work and it wasn't that serious. And um, everyone was happy and nobody's time was wasted. And, this uh, wasn't a waste of my time. I'm sorry that I delivered four master's theses on things and also about the David Cassidy, but I do think I love you and the listeners, and this was fun. I'm glad we did it. Listen, it's never a waste of time to hear your thoughts on these issues. That is, in fact, why I am here. I love it so much. And I had never heard Elvis Presley throatily declare he touched me before so it was a real it was a real high point for me today yeah it i mean it goes places and explains things and i just don't think our particular degrees are enough to uh apprehend the entire story there but i do know this our backstreet is back uh phrasing (laughs) next week We'll be talking about the Sweet 16 point values. It's not just an up-down vote anymore. The shit is getting serious. So grab a sitar and buckle up. We're back to the season the season in the main next week. And we hey. hope you will be there too.
Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Mark Blankenship. That's me. And edited by Sarah D. Bunting. That's me. This podcast is a proud member of the Believe Network. Learn more at BLEAV.com. And if you want to talk about songs, suggest a season theme, get a pop chart reading or customized playlist, or have a cocktail with us and your fellow listeners, then come on by our Patreon page at patreon.com slash where you'll find polls, happy hours, and tons of extra episodes and content. We're also at Talk Songs on Twitter, at Mastass Everywhere on Instagram, and Mastass.podcast on Facebook. Or just email us, talkaboutsongs at gmail.com. All that contact info will be in our show notes. Scroll down. Hope we'll be talking about songs with you soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.